Well, again, welcome to our Good Friday service. Do you find it a bit strange that we call this day Good Friday? I mean, this is Good Friday, the day that we remember Jesus' death. I never really considered the day of my dad's death to be a good day. While I was glad he no longer was afflicted with dementia and I knew he was a believer in Jesus and I knew he was in a much better place, but a good day? You know, when I was in my late teens, I stopped attending church. And other than those years in Sunday school and confirmation, I never opened a Bible. But that didn't stop me from believing I knew everything there was to know about Jesus. In fact, I would pronounce Jesus and I were good. I don't need to go to church. He and I are like this. And now that I'm a little older and a lot wiser, well, maybe a lot older and a little wiser, I've come to see how truly foolish that young man was, how naive his thought was that he understood everything there was to know about Jesus. But I also understand that that young man is me. And that if I'm not diligent, if I'm not careful, I can fall into that same mistake, believing that I've got Jesus all figured out, that there's nothing else left to learn about Jesus. You know, next month, Terry and I will celebrate our 36th wedding anniversary. And if I were to tell you that after 36 years of marriage that I have Terry completely figured out, there's nothing about her I don't know, there's nothing that would surprise me. I'm sure those of you that have been married longer than 36 years would look at me and sort of shake your head and, and laugh. Well, at least the wives would, you know, because us husbands sometimes we're foolish enough to believe those things. But if we're ever to truly understand why this day is called Good Friday, and not just understand the answer to that question, but to truly appreciate the answer to the point that that answer changes the way we see everything, the way we see everyone, the way we see the world. If we're going to truly have that kind of appreciation, we need to endeavor to spend every minute we can knowing Jesus. Because Jesus is the key. Not just to understanding Good Friday, but the key to understanding everything. Now, I do not believe I will ever fully come to understand and appreciate the things about my wife, Terry. Now, somewhere my wife is shouting, amen. But if that's true about my wife, and I, I do believe that it is, how much more true is that about Jesus? How much more is there to know about Jesus? the author and creator of life, the one who created everything from nothing, how much more is it that we have to learn about him? But the good news is that Jesus makes him knowable. Jesus not only makes him knowable, he makes him accessible. He makes it possible to have a relationship with God. And that, well, that changes everything. My hope today is as we study this text, we will come to have a better appreciation for why we call this day Good Friday. As we study the life of Jesus Christ, as we study the person of Jesus Christ, as we come to know him better through this story of his death. As we begin today, I ask you, would you bow your heads and pray with me? Father in heaven, the true author and giver of life, 
who created everything we see and some things we've yet to see from nothing. Father, we come before you this day and we seek to understand you better. And we acknowledge that we know you in a limited way, but you promise that one day we will see you face to face. But this day I ask that you would reveal yourself to us, that you would mold us and shape us by the power of your word. Mold us and shape us into the image of your son. Father, I pray that the words of my mouth, the meditation of my heart would be truly pleasing in your sight. My God, my rock, my redeemer. Amen. Well, the text we're using today is Luke chapter 23, verses 26 through 49. If you've got your Bibles, I would encourage you to open them up. You know, at the, central, at the center part of this story is a person, and that person is Jesus. But there's also an object that takes center stage in this story, and that is the cross. The cross, the tool the Romans used to crucify Jesus, the cross that we see on necklaces and in tattoos and hanging on our walls and in prominent places in our churches, this instrument of execution, it seems strange that we would place it so. But hopefully as we go along, we will see that Jesus changes everything, even how we see the cross. And as we study God's word through Luke's gospel, I believe he will show us three ways that he does that. The first way that he does that is he takes what is meant to be an impediment and he turns it into a blessing. The second way is he takes this cross of condemnation and he changes it and transforms it into a cross of grace. And thirdly, he takes this instrument of death and he transforms it into an instrument of life. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 23, verse 26, as we begin to look at this cross, this impediment. We're told in Mark's gospel that it was 9 a.m. that Jesus was crucified. And here in Luke's gospel, we see Jesus a little bit before that time coming out of the city carrying his cross and a man named Simon who was from Cyrene, a Jewish man making his way into the city a little bit before nine. And we believe that he was making his way, it's with a good assumption that we, make, we understand that he's making his way toward the temple service at 9 a.m., but there's an impediment. There's this crowd coming and following and, and yelling, and there's this man carrying a cross. And as he tries to probably squeeze his way by, the Roman soldiers grab him. They're, we're told that they seize him, and they force him to carry Jesus' cross up the hill. The cross was truly an impediment to Simon that day. It kept him from going to worship. But the cross was also intended to be an impediment for Jesus. The Jewish officials thought that this cross would impede his ministry, that it would end his ministry. But they didn't know Jesus. Jesus took what was an impediment and he transformed it into a blessing. We see in Mark's gospel this same scene. In Mark chapter 15, 21, Mark records Simon of Cyrene being forced to carry Jesus' cross up the hillside. Only in Mark's gospel, we read that Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way from the country 
and they forced him to carry the cross. Here, Mark gives us another detail that helps us better understand what's going on there that day. You see, we believe that Alexander and Rufus were prominent in the early church. And they were known as the way the story is told. They would have been known by that audience that Mark was writing to. And we believe that at some point, either carrying the cross up the hill, watching Jesus crucified, or at some time later, this strange spectacle, this strange interruption, led to the conversion of Simon, as evidenced by his sons being prominent in the church later. I can think of Simon in later days talking about how he was so aggravated and how he was so ashamed to have to carry that cross up the hill. But how that embarrassment became his biggest blessing. Jesus transforms this cross, this impediment, into a blessing. Jesus changes everything. Next, we see that Jesus takes this cross of condemnation and transforms it into a cross of grace. You know, in antiquity, crucifixion was considered to be the most gruesome and shameful way to die. It is believed that crucifixion originated with the Assyrians and the Babylonians, and it was used by the Persians and Alexander the Great, and the Phoenicians used it and brought it to Rome, but it was the Romans who perfected the use of the cross in crucifixion. They were very good at it. No one escaped a Roman crucifixion. And so when you saw someone carrying a cross, you literally saw a dead man walking. It was a sign of humiliation. It was a sign of condemnation. An execution in those times was a public spectacle. In ancient Rome, it became entertainment. Large crowds would gather, and they would witness this execution, and they would stand by, and they would hurl insults and mock the dying. And here on this hillside on Calvary, we see the leaders and the people, and we see the soldiers, and we see even one of the criminals mocking Jesus, saying to Jesus, if you are the Son of God, if you truly are the Messiah, if you are the King of the Jews, then save yourself. See, they believe Jesus to be weak and powerless. They believed there was nothing that he could do to them. But they were wrong. Now, if that were my son on the cross, you know what I would do to them? I would come down from heaven and I would obliterate every one of them. And I would take my son down off of that hideous contraption. And on my way back to heaven, I would destroy earth in my wake. That's what I would do to them. But that's not what God does to them. God looks down upon this scene he looks at his son dying on the cross. He looks down upon the mockers. And he looks down and he says to his son, condemned. And to the mockers, to you and to me, he says, you are free to go. He, he will die your death. Now aren't you fortunate that I'm not God? God gives us what we do not deserve. 
He gives us grace. He gives us forgiveness. Jesus takes this cross, this symbol of condemnation, which remains a sign of condemnation for Jesus. And he turns it into a symbol of grace for you and I. He turns it into a thing of beauty. Jesus changes everything. And finally, Jesus takes this instrument of death and transforms it into an instrument of life. There's one individual in this story we have yet to hear from, and that is the second criminal. We're told that he's been there with Jesus the whole time, although he's not recorded as saying anything, and he's watched this spectacle, and he's reached his limit because we read in the scriptures that this second criminal turns to the other criminal, and he says to him, do you not fear God? Since you are under the same sentence, we are punished justly for what we are getting. We are getting what we deserve. But this man, this man, he's done nothing. For three hours, about three hours, this man has watched Jesus die. He's watched him bleed, and he's watched him mocked and ridiculed by this crowd. He's watched him pray for these people. He's watched him pray, Father, forgive them. And at some point, he has to begin to wonder, how in the world does this man pray for these people? And at some point, we don't know when. Maybe he asked the question, who is this man really? And as he looks upon Jesus' bloody, beaten body, as he looks upon this bloody cross, the love of Jesus becomes evident to him. And it makes him aware of his own sinfulness. It makes him aware of this just punishment that he deserves. And he does the only thing that he can do in response. He throws himself at Jesus' mercy and he cries out to Jesus, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. To which Jesus replied, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Jesus transforms this instrument of death into an instrument of life. Jesus, again, changes everything. As this scene concludes, we turn to Luke chapter 23, verse 46, where Jesus' last words are recorded, where he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And when he had said these things, he breathed his last. It was on a Friday that Jesus was tried in this kangaroo court and crucified. It was on a Friday, the sixth day of the Jewish week. In the creation account in Genesis, it was on the sixth day that God created man and breathed life into him. Is it not ironic that on the sixth day, man attempts to extinguish the breath of God. You see, they saw the cross as an impediment to his ministry, as a condemnation 
of his teaching and as a means to their end. They saw the beaten, bloodied, dying Jesus and thought him weak and powerless. But they never really knew Jesus. Because Jesus does the unimaginable to save those who do the unthinkable. He's saving them from the cross. Jesus does a remarkable thing. See, they saw him as weak. They thought they had him beaten. And for one moment, evil thought it had won. But again, they didn't know Jesus. During this pandemic, let us never underestimate him. Let us never think of him as weak and powerless. Never let, never let us think of him as cold and distant and uninterested as to what is going on. For he came as a man and he lived as a man perfectly, but he died a death, a criminal's death on a cross, our death on a cross, so that we could celebrate eternity with him now and forever. And so on this Good Friday, in response to Jesus' love, his compassion, let us care for, comfort one another. Let us be Jesus to one another. Let us be Jesus. Jesus is the key to everything. Jesus is the answer to everything. But this is not the end of the story. There's still one chapter yet to come. A chapter where we will fully come to appreciate the significance of why we call this Good Friday. A day where again, Jesus will change everything. You know, the famous Scottish preacher, James Stewart, in one of his sermons captures well the complex person of Jesus Christ. And it's with his words that I wish to close today. He writes, when I think of Jesus, I think of the mystery of divine personality, the startling coalescence of contrarieties that I see in him. He was the meekest and lowliest of all the sons of men. Yet he said he would come on the clouds of heaven in the glory of God. He was so austere that even evil spirits and demons cried out in terror at his coming. Yet he was so genial and winsome and approachable that children loved to play with him. And the little ones nestled in his arms, and his company and the innocent gaiety of a village wedding was like the sunshine. No one was ever half so kind or compassionate to sinners, yet no one ever spoke such red-hot scorching words about sin. He would not break a bruised reed, and his whole life was love. Yet on one occasion, he demanded of the Pharisees how they expected to escape the damnation of hell. He was a dreamer of dreams and a seer of visions, yet for sheer stark naked realism, he has all of our self-styled realists beaten. He was the servant of all, washing the disciples' feet. Yes, master, yet masterfully, he strode into the temple, and the hucksters and the traitors fell over one another in their mad rush to get away from the fire they saw blazing in his eyes. He saved others, yet at the last, 
himself he would not save. There is nothing in history like the union of contrast to confront you in the Gospels. The mystery of Jesus is the mystery of a personality. Amen.